much. Well, good morning, everyone. You can take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of First John. You're getting there, uh, so I appreciate your prayers as I head off to Denver this this week, tomorrow morning, and I'm going to go get my head examined. Some of you have been praying for for a long time, I'm sure. Um, um, it, it is uh, something that uh, I'm looking forward to getting some answers about uh, with some of the neurological stuff that's going on, and uh, uh, it's going to be a rigorous week, but I'll be back. Reading of God's Holy Word, 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. God adds his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Please be seated. So if you've uh, been with us uh, before uh, in this series, uh, you may remember that one of the things that was going on among the believers uh, to whom John has written was uh, evidently a, a, a party, a uh, um, not a woohoo party, but a group of people who were causing disruptions in the church. They were acting in a very unloving, uh, unkind way, divisive way, uh, challenging the authority, not only the apostles, but challenging the very doctrine that they were teaching regarding the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we spent some time uh, talking about that in the past. But they were, um, some, they'd been in the church for a while, some had departed the church, but apparently were still creating problems and trying to deceive people regarding who Jesus Christ truly is. And we've noted in this series, uh, throughout the 
throughout the book so far, numerous occasions where John is saying, all right, I'm coming to you, you folks to, uh, for this reason. I'm writing for this reason and that reason and the other reason. And so that is the, the premise behind the, at least the, the title of this series, which is Reasons to Write. And we've been looking at some of those reasons as we've gone along. Now we come to another one here in verse 26 of chapter 2. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. I will tell you that in going through this passage, uh, it's challenging to figure out what John's focus was. And you say, well, how can that be? He just said. Well, then he doesn't talk too much about deceit except later on. And the, the themes of, of abiding, of appearing, of knowing, all of those things are interwoven here. So uh, it took uh, some, uh, some head-scratching and meditating and prayer to uh, try to come to grips with what John is getting at here. And, and then having done that, figure out a way to say, all right, now what? Now what do we, what do, we, do, what do, we do with it? The uh, term abiding particularly appears prominently in this passage. Uh, in, in this passage, uh, the word abide could also be translated to remain, to remain. We just sang a hymn about how the Lord remains with us. We're going to be thinking about that uh, here in just a moment. All of us are abiding somewhere and in something. We're remaining somewhere. We're remaining in our understanding of who God is. We're sticking with that. Um, sometimes we are uh, remaining with a kind of mindset that says, I've made up my mind, and don't confuse me with the facts. Uh, sometimes we're remaining with the attitude uh, that I've got my fingers in my ears, and we go, yeah, 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 because we don't really want to listen. We're happy with where we're at. Um, other times, uh, I trust that we're less rebellious against the Lord and are desiring to remain in and with Him, living according to His Word, living by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work. But all of us are abiding somewhere. We're remaining somewhere. And actually, this I've been talking about this in kind of a um, more of the less tangible uh, way in terms of where our mind is and all of that, but let's make it really concrete. Uh, okay, you ready for this? This is a tough question. Um, who all lives in a house? Anybody here? Anybody here not live in a house? And, and by house, I'm doing really broadly, like there's four walls, there's a roof, you're, you're not living under the stars. In fact, even if you are living under the stars, it doesn't matter. If that's where you're living, you're remaining there. All right? That you're not uh, going home and going, ah, I don't like this house. I'm going to go a little sleep in the yard. Or, I don't like this house. Uh, I'm going to go hang out with Greg because Greg's got a brand new house. And after all, he's got lots of room. So I'm just going to go live with him. Um, and while he might like the company for a little while, Chances are, after a while, uh, you know, the Bible even talks about company that stays too long, you know, can sometimes be, what's the term? A stench. 
right? Um, so we don't want to overstay our welcome when we decide we're going to remain where we don't belong. But we're, we get restless. We have a mindset that is not content. We covet those things that we don't have. We want more uh, of whatever it is we think we want more of. More possessions, more power, more food, more health, more you fill in the blank. More pleasure. And so we move around a lot. This uh, is actually uh, something that is quite characteristic of our particular culture. It didn't used to be this way where people often lived within, you know, five miles of where they were born and didn't really move around and sometimes, many times lived in the same house in which they were born. Well, that sort of thing, the more mobile we've gotten, people move everywhere uh, just by way of kind of impressing that. Uh, um, how many people here have moved more than 10 times in your life? And that includes military. Yeah. Yeah. How many more than five? Yeah. Uh, anybody under five? More than 20. Yeah, probably more than 20. Yeah, some of you. Yeah, a lot of us here have moved multiple, multiple times, and we're kind of used to that. Well, that's, that kind of thing has crept into not just where we live, and it's crept into jobs and so on. Uh, remember when I was doing recruiting work for uh, Christian College, one of the things that we used to tell young people who were trying to just really go, oh man, what am I going to study? What's my major going to be? It's, you know, it's, it's like, wow. And it's like, well, the stats are that no matter what, what major that you go into, the chances are you're going to change complete careers three or four times during your life. You know, the, the idea we would just say is pick one you like now, go through the discipline, it'll all be good, it'll all help you, you're probably going to change anyway. I didn't even wait till I got out of college, I changed my major four times before I graduated, which is why I was there a long time. Um, but anyway, we're indecisive. We're not. We're discontent. We want something else. We want to remain, uh, but we can't seem to find that. And when it comes to spiritual matters, there are. I think I mentioned this first last week, uh, or the week before, um, that there are folks that are. That the Bible describes them as ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. They're constantly looking for this and the latest teaching, the latest thing out here, because certainly now I'll, I'll know, I'll know. And they miss the, the one thing that's truly abiding, and that's what the Lord has said. And then, of course, uh, for many, um, you know, the, the whole idea of church hopping and the lack of membership and the lack of w willingness to put their roots down is kind of endemic to our whole, our whole Christian society these days. And the, the thought of remaining and covenants is kind of a rare thing. Well, John writes here to say, I'm writing to those about, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The deceivers that were there claiming to know Christ, claiming to say, yeah, we've got the truth about him. Come on over and talk to us. We're not acting out of love for the brethren. They were acting out of love for themselves. But they were 
they were appealing to this idea that there's got to be something better over the hill, around the bend, on the other side of the fence. Use whatever cliche you want. But that somewhere down the road, there's a better thing than I've got now. Which, when you start looking at things that are in this world and this fallen life, there probably are things that are better. But uh, when you start talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and how he's revealed himself and saying there's something better, now you've got a real problem. And the deceivers may appear to remain in Christ, but this passage makes it really clear that they are remaining or abiding in something else, or particularly someone else, entirely. My urging to you, and I believe John is urging us uh, this in this passage, is that you would abide in the Lord and would do so without deceit in your own heart, not deceiving yourselves or striving to deceive anyone else. Now John uh, lays the foundation for his argument by speaking, first of all, uh, and perhaps this might be a little surprising, as I went through this, it was one of those things trying to work together, and why did he start there? You might think that this would be where he would end, but he starts with it as the foundation, and then the more you go through, you understand why. In the first and the last parts of this passage, what you see focused uh, upon by John is the work of the Lord himself on your behalf, how the Lord abides and remains with you. And in verse 27 of chapter uh, 2, he says, The anointing that you received from him, that is, from the Lord, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. The Lord abides in you by his Spirit to instruct you, to instruct you. He instructs you uh, in a couple of ways here. Through the anointing of the Spirit, and when you look at chapter uh, 2, verses 20 and 21, I'm not just uh, uh, arbitrarily assigning the Spirit of God into this role here. We read there in chapter 20, verse 20, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. And he's speaking there of the Spirit of God. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. That was the heart of the message the last time when we talked about walking according to the truth that you already know. So through the anointing of the Spirit of God, he instructs us. Now this anointing, you know, we're used to thinking about anointing in the scriptures as either somebody pouring oil uh, on the head or water ceremonially at the baptism of Christ when the Spirit of God descends as a dove upon Christ, that's symbolic of the anointing that comes upon him as Christ is commissioned there for his office as the high priest, um, very much fulfilling all the the images uh, that were put forth in the Old Testament regarding the high priest. This anointing has the idea of setting apart or commissioning, um, and yet more than that, of imparting power and authority to the individual who's being anointed. It's quite a powerful term, particularly when it's spoken of to us. The Lord is not just standing off somewhere um, 
hollering at us and hoping to get our attention. He's coming upon us as his children as we walk, you know, as we respond to him in faith and trust him for our redemption. The, we have the authority given to us, but also the ability given to us to carry out our commission of being witnesses in the world. It's a pretty powerful thing. If the Lord did not abide with us in this way, how well do you think we'd do? You just take an honest look at yourself. As fervent as you might be about the Scriptures, if the Spirit of God was not coming alongside and enabling you to open your mouth and testify of the Gospel of Jesus Christ to others, how faithful would you be? How accurate would you be? How willing would you be? How fearful or not would you be? But by the Spirit of God's coming upon us, when, when He fills us as we are believers, we are instructed in such a way that we are able to do the things that He calls us to do. And he instructs us faithfully. Uh, take a look there also in the second half of 27, which goes right along with, again, what we just what we saw a couple weeks ago in verses 20 and 21. That no, you have no need that anyone should teach you, but his anointing teaches you about everything. And it's true and is no lie. You can trust the Spirit of God when he instructs you through his word. When the things you need to know, you go to his word and he instructs you about it. And it will not lead you astray. What a blessing. The question is, are you listening? Deceivers, in this context, are not. They've already made up their mind what they think God has to say. they made up their mind what they think God is and what they think he's like and what he does. And they've passed judgment on that to whatever, by whatever standard they've concocted in their own minds all the while declaring, oh yeah, we're of God. We believe in Jesus. But it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not how he has revealed himself. The Lord abides in you to instruct you. He also, though, he abides in you for a different reason. And it's not just to fill your head with knowledge so that you can congratulate yourself that you know better than anybody else about what's going on. In chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, uh, we read, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. And then 10 speaks about who, uh, that it's evident, who are the children of God. The Lord, yes, abides in us to instruct us. We need that truth. We need to know what it is that he is saying to us. But he also abides in us to sanctify us, to set us apart unto himself. And how does he do that? How does he do that? First, we read here in verse 9 that he imparts his nature to us. And that is the idea behind uh, that his, his seed, God's seed abides in him. Again, 
the Lord abiding with us by imparting his, his nature to us. Now we all are created in God's image, but that image was corrupted in the fall. And while we still show evidence of the marks of the creator's hand in that we have being, that we are that we have spirits, that we have characteristics that uh, mirror many of his own in terms of being able to have relationship and knowledge and emotion and will and all those kinds of things. Those things have been corrupted by sin. And we need to have his image restored in us. And this is a picturesque way of speaking of it. The word here for seed is... um, it comes from the Greek word sperma, and I think you can all hear the, the English word that we have now. It speaks of something that is implanted, something that will take root and grow. Um, the implanting or imparting idea of a seed here uh, is a very picturesque way of speaking of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And picturing as the Spirit of God comes in upon us and we're filled with the Spirit when we are when we are redeemed by his grace. But upon your salvation, I'm pretty sure looking around this crowd and uh, looking in the mirror this morning, I'm pretty sure that I would be included in this crowd that uh, no one that became a Christian, upon becoming a Christian, instantly became perfect. I'd ask you to raise your hand if that's not true of anybody here, but I'm not going to do that. That's why I speak about this sanctifying idea here, that he abides with us. And that is kind of inherent in this. He didn't just kind of, you know, hit us with salvation and then go on his merry way. He is abiding with us so that we will become, as other scriptures speak to it, we will, we will grow from grace to grace and glory to glory. That we will, be, we will walk in a manner that is worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he takes us from, from the time of his foreknowledge through his predestination, through his adoption and justification and sanctification all the way to glorification. Romans chapter 8. You know, it's... Um, I'm thankful that our God is patient with us. I've been reading through the, the prophets lately. I'm in Jeremiah right now. And... <clears throat> Over and over, what strikes me there is the Lord's incredible patience with Israel. You know, you've, you've abandoned me, you've gone off, you've been unfaithful to me, but I will not abandon you. I will lift you up, I will restore you. And he has no reason to do that beyond his intentional love. That's it. And he does that with us as well. But he begins that sanctification process by implanting his nature in us, which is another way of saying, by redeeming us and giving us his spirit. So that's the next blank, if you're filling in the blanks. He sanctifies by by not only imparting his nature to you, but by regenerating you, giving you new life. And he, he sanctifies further by adopting you. We are the children of God. We began as children of the devil because of our false and fallen nature. 
And so we would remain unless he act on our behalf. But he's the one who gives us new life. And he's the one who adopts us and calls us his children. This is part of the sanctifying process. Chapter 3 and verse 1 speaks a little bit of this. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. I want you to think for a minute about the incredible love that is spoken of here. He who loved us while we were yet his enemies. We uh, have no right or portion with our God apart from his action, apart from his desire that we, we have it. And even further, apart from his action to make sure that it happens. So when you think about this first this first, sec- this first idea here about the Lord abiding in you. I, th- I think as we go on, keep that in mind, you will see how that is foundational to everything else that is coming. Because everything else I'm going to say here has to do with those whom the Lord has redeemed. And if the Lord hasn't redeemed you, then the, the things that we're talking about here end up being... Uh, essentially legalistic, meaningless, um, empty pursuit of anything. But on the, built on the foundation of the Lord's redemption of our souls, then the things that we're going to talk about here uh, have not only meaning, but, but uh, profound meaning for the way that we live and understand who our God is and what our ultimate hope is. So, our Lord abides in you. Now, the major part of the central part of this section, uh, of the, the major part of the central portion of this, this section is focused on you needing to abide in the Lord. The Lord abides in you if you're a redeemer, a, a redeemed person. But you also are obligated to abide in him. And what does that abiding look like? Well, first of all, take a look at chapter 2. Again, the last phrase of verse 27 and then moving on to 29. Um, Just as it has taught you, and that is the anointing, the, the Spirit of God, just as it has taught you, abide in him. You now remain. He, rebides, he abides with you. You abide or remain with him. Be content with him. Don't look for some other redeemer. There is no other redeemer. There is no other mediator between God and man but the man Christ Jesus. And now little children abide in him. Verse 28 so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Stop there for a moment. First of all, this abiding, it must be in obedience. To remain in him um, does not mean just going to church on Sundays, though you should uh, as a believer. You should be in fellowship with God's people under the preaching of his word, the discipline of the, the body, and so on. All of those things that go along with being part of the church. But notice that this is in the context of as you've been taught by the Spirit of God, 
Remain there. Walk in obedience to him. Abide in him means uh, to walk in obedience according to what you've been taught. The word is there. There's no excuse for any of us. This abiding, however, is not something that... Uh, and this, when you put these two thoughts together, this is rather remarkable. There are many religions that speak to obedience, that you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do the other thing. Again, um, for the legalistic mentality that uh, I can only come to God as long as I do certain things, I've got to do certain things a certain way, or God won't be happy with me, it's all dependent upon me. Uh, it, and there's that kind of mindset, certainly among evangelicals, but certainly other major world religions, most world religions have some work component in them, that everything ultimately is dependent upon how well you do your job as a person. And if you do it a certain way, and you do it well enough, then God, however you define him, will be happy, and all will be well. I want you to ponder for a minute and think about what kind of peace is available in those religions or in that mentality. And the answer is there's none. Even in religions, uh, Eastern religions, that uh, why do you think there is such a focus upon meditation and trying to enter into some form of nirvana or uh, a mental equilibrium and all of that. It's all, it's all there because they've got to come up with some way to imitate real peace. And it's something that they, is not eternal, it's not everlasting, it has to constantly be revisited, and it ultimately doesn't satisfy. But whether you sit in a lotus position and hum or not, is not the point. Because we can do the same thing without all the Eastern trappings here in the West when we try to numb our, our, our frustrations, our fears, our wondering if we're good enough with all kinds of works, with all kinds of stimulants, with all kinds of substance abuse, with all kinds of pursuit of pleasure or anything else that will be a substitute for what God says is the only real um, foundation of peace, and that is righteousness before him. And it's a righteousness that only he can provide and only he can ultimately fulfill. That's why you have to trust in the one who actually did it all right, the Lord Jesus Christ. Him and no other. So when we think about abiding in obedience, yes, but it's not an obedience that, oh man, I blew it. Okay, it's all done. I'm going to start all over. I wonder if God's going to love me anymore. I mean, I've had people, young people especially, say, I'm too big of a sinner. There's no way God could, have, could ever forgive me. <laughs> or, yeah, I trusted in Jesus, but now I've sinned this way. and There's no hope for me now. And ultimately, when we take that approach, we're basically saying that we are more powerful than God is because God's made a plan with an infinite Savior that we somehow think that we can overturn by our puny little actions, even though they're sins and need to be corrected and, and dealt with, um, the Lord is not undone. 
And that's why these next verses are so awesome. When we read here, I, I want you to abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. If you're trusting only in your obedience, period, you're going to have shame because you cannot do it, beloved. But Christ already has. That's why it's so, you see why it's so foundational that John started with the Lord abiding in us. He took the initiation. He's the one that drew us out. He's the one that called us. He's the one that redeemed us. Now on that foundation, we can have confidence and not stand before him in shame. The appears here, of course, obviously is referring to the second coming. Now this is another thing thing that came. <clears throat> the word appears, appears a lot in this passage. And the first time <clears throat> here has to do with the second coming. The second time has to do with, uh, or the, the corresponding section to this, we'll see in a moment, refers to the first coming. And there's another thought. I was like, why did he put the second coming first and the first coming second in his discussion of this argument? Well, again, he's laying the foundation. He's saying, look what's, what's coming that's beyond this life. It's already established. It is, this is our confidence. This is our hope. He's coming again. And in the, the, the development of his argument, he uses what Christ did in the first coming to show that, yes, uh, what he did in the first guarantees what's going to happen in the second. So we abide with him in obedience. We abide with him in confidence so that we're not ashamed when uh, we come, when the Lord, and we, when we stand before the Lord. Um, some of you, this will date me, and if you know what I'm referring to, this will date you as well. Uh, but you have the advantages that you don't have to admit it, whereas here I am up here. Uh, so have you ever heard of Chick Publications? Some of you may have heard of Chick Publications. Please, somebody else tell me you've heard of it. This was a big thing back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, thank you. At least one. Oh, yes. A really uh, big emphasis. Of little cartoon books teaching about various and sundry things that had to do with, with Christianity. And they really focused a lot on the second coming and judgment and all of that. And those little books were written in such a way as to terrify anybody who read them, including believers, that you would read this, you would stand before God in all of your nakedness and openness, and you would be utterly ashamed, but somehow you would get drug, you know, limping into the kingdom. Um, and uh, if you ever run across them, uh, they're really good for kindling, and that's about what I would suggest you do with them. But boy, they were popular for a long time, uh, that kind of idea. Totally missing stuff like this here in First John. To stand before him unashamed. Anybody here? I want you to think about this for a minute. I want you, I want you to let it sink in. Is anyone here, take away what we just talked about here, 
Is anyone here, just as you stand and think about yourself, anticipating shame when you stand before Christ? It's hard not to even think that. To go, It's hard not to hold on to that kind of idea because we know that we're not obedient. We know that we fail to walk according to what God has done. How can we not be ashamed? And yet that's what John says here. In the same breath that he's been talking about obedience. John, don't you know we're not perfect? We can't do this. He absolutely knows it because of what Jesus Christ has done. You can stand unashamed in his presence. We are not going to be wringing our hands in front of the great white throne wondering if he's going to accept us. If we're truly in him and trusting in his work, abiding in him, every tear will be wiped away. All sorrows will be wiped away. We will not be standing there with guilty consciences before God, wondering if he's going to accept us. We will know we're already accepted in the beloved, period. That's confidence. And that's what John's talking about here. All right, I'm going to cover, I've got time to cover one more point. I was talking to somebody about this this week, and I said, I don't think I'm going to finish this sermon this week. And uh, I actually got a little further than I thought I was going to, but nonetheless, let's finish with this last point about abiding here. What does it look like? Abiding, yes, obediently in obedience, abiding confidently before God. And then abiding in honor. And this goes along with what we see here in verse 28. And this will wrap this up well, uh, kind of give the other side of the confidence. Where John says, we may have confidence and gives the negative then. And not stand before him in shame. Not be ashamed uh, in his presence. Not shrink from him. An incredibly powerful uh, uh, image there. Of not even wanting to go into his presence, not even wanting to see him right because we're so ashamed. There may have been times in your life where you've done something shameful that, that you were ashamed of, and when particularly someone that uh, maybe you admire or someone that that shameful act was done against or something else, if they'd come into the room or you knew they were going, you just wanted to be somewhere else. That's what John is saying. It's not going to be that way. You abide in him, abide in him in honor. I put it that way, just the opposite of shame. I remember years ago, uh, this wasn't related to some shameful act or anything, but it made an impression upon me. When I was in high school, I was walking across the schoolyard and... I got to uh, I got to the, the the main school building and one of the teachers there called me over to him and he, he said, uh, "Len, what were you hanging your head for, walking across the schoolyard?" I wasn't even aware I was doing. You know, I mean, when when you walk, maybe I was in thought. Who knows? Uh, but I had my head down. I was kind of walking along. A lot of us do that when we walk along, particularly now that we have cell phones, right? Like this. This was, yes, this was before cell phone days. We didn't know what a cell phone was. 
We thought it was maybe a phone that was in the cell where you were being incarcerated, but that would be about it. And what he said to me has stuck with me for all of these years. He said, pick your head up. You're a child of the king. And uh, I love that. And I've often thought about that since. I probably, there are probably still times when I walk with my head down these days because I'm trying to walk where I'm putting my feet because my feet don't always seem to know where the ground is. Uh, but to lift my head up and remember whose child I am. And I think that's kind of the idea here that when we come into the presence of the king, he is our, not just our king, he's not just our God, he is our father. And as he is abiding in us, we abide in him with that sense of honor. A lot of us take a great deal of pride in our family names. You know, I'm a Pine, I'm an Anderson, I'm a Willis. Whatever your name happens to be. And we rejoice in that. We rejoice in our lineage. We rejoice in our nationality. We, live, we pick our heads up. And uh, we, we talk about that. And songs are made about that, about being proud to be an American, proud to you know, be a country boy, or proud to be whatever. We're proud of a lot of things. But we need to remember that we were walking uh, through this world not as slaves, but as free if we're in Jesus Christ, as he abides in us. That's an honor. That's an honor. Usually, when people are honored with something, uh, there may be a moment of humility, but then there's the heads up, and there's a, there's a pride that's there. I think about like the Olympics and that kind of stuff, when they get their medals. Yeah. Um, most of them don't sit there, you know, kicking rocks with their feet, you know, when they're standing on the podium. They're, they're, they're proud of their achievement and they're proud of who they represent. And that's kind of what we have here. Not that we're proud in, ourselves, in, in and of ourselves. But as we abide in Him, we need to do so with a sense of that we stand in a position of honor. And that kind of fleshes out that idea of standing before him in confidence. And before, but the honor kind of us, certainly in front of him, but also in the world around us, as we are the children of the king by his grace. Well, I'm going to stop there because the next point, as you can see, is a bit longer, a little more involved. And it will actually, um, by starting there, will take us on to the conclusion very nicely by way of transition. So uh, we, will, we will pick up here at the next one. As you might tell from the outline, the, uh, uh, the point has to do with righteousness. So we will spend some time looking at that, God willing. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm, I, I'm not going to speak next week. Uh, Elder Willis is going to fill the pulpit after the week that I anticipate coming um, while the sermon's done, I'm not sure I'll have the gray cells functional enough to, uh, to uh, deliver it. So I'll be here, but uh, I'll lead the worship, but uh, he's going to fill the pulpit. So in two weeks, we'll pick up uh, here at verse 29 and also in chapter 3.
um, speaking about abiding in our Lord in righteousness as the Lord allows. So with that, let's go ahead and we'll go to prayer as we close out for this morning. Thank you, Father, for your mercies. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that, that you chose us in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world. And then you then uh, put your plan into action to bring about your will in our hearts and lives. We thank you that you abide with us, that you instruct us, that you set, apart, uh, set us apart unto yourself in making us new creatures, giving us life and adopting us as your children. Lord, help us to walk obediently before you, but with confidence not in our ability, but in what Christ has already done so that we will stand in honor before you and before all men, knowing that we are your children by your grace. Thank you, Lord, for what you will do with us and among us. We ask, Lord, now as we come before you at your table that your spirit would abide with us uh, even more and pour out your grace.